that, let's open our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 7. Uh, all you kids have a Bible? Do you have a Bible? Okay. Matt, we got some Bibles back there you can share with these kids? Okay. Do any of you all know where Zechariah is? Second to last book of the Old Testament. That's not hard to find. So while you're all getting Bibles, everybody else open. Uh, this makes us approximately halfway through the book of Zechariah. In the first six chapters, we have very unusual visions that even Zechariah didn't understand. Angels. And then uh, it stops here. And so the rest of the book is like the other prophets in the Old Testament. They spoke from God, rebuking God's people, encouraging them, promising the Messiah, giving commands, and making predictions of things in the near future and the far future, and then practical lessons. That's what basically the prophets did. So we'll go through this one by one, Zechariah chapter 7. Okay, everybody got it? Uh, car report, everything taken care of out there? Good. Okay, open your Bibles to Zechariah 7. Look at verse 1. It's a historical marker. In the fourth year of King Darius, some pronounce it Darius, I've known two people with that name, came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, Chislev. So that's a historical marker. This is in the year 518 B.C. That's before Christ. The Bible is history. It's not myth or fairy tales. This is a historical marker. It's not fiction, and it's not what used to be called faction, where someone writes a novel based upon someone's life, but they add in a lot of extra stuff that may or may not happen. But the Bible doesn't do faction, and it doesn't do fiction. What do we know about Darius or Darius? He was a Medo-Persian that reigned in Persia after Belshazzar. We learn about that in the book of Daniel. Belshazzar was the one that got drunk and saw the handwriting on the wall and died that night, and he was succeeded sometime later by Darius. And Darius is mentioned in Daniel 5 and 6. He was the one that was favorable to Daniel, and uh, he was the one... It grieved when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, and he rejoiced when he survived it. So there's Mr. Darius, or Darius, not verses 2 and 3. When the people sent, well, I'm going to try to pronounce these names right. People sent Sherezer with Regimelech and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord, to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of the hosts and the prophets, saying, Should I weep? In the fifth month, and fast as I have done for so many years. Those are interesting names. <laughs> Sherezer and Regimelech. I've never met anybody with those names. No wonder. So what they're doing is calling for prayer. And prayer and fasting. Fasting means you're not eating. You know, uh, there is a prayer breakfast in Washington every year. And certain politicians go to get their pictures taken. I wonder how many would show up if it was prayer and fasting rather than breakfasting. Why not call them to pray and fast? You find that in the Bible. And it says that you call them to the house of God. 
That's talking about the temple, which had not been completed yet. It still have two more years to go. By the way, there's two-year gap between chapter 6 and 7, and the temple has not been finished yet. It'll have two more years to go. And so they meet there at the house of God, and there's a lesson here. Pray there. The priests should have been praying there. In Matthew 21, 13, Jesus drove money changers out of the temple and said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a tin of thieves. We read one translation that paraphrased that and says, You have made it a den of robbers, a hideaway. My, my house, now, the house of God is us, but we meet in a building, and so it should be a house of prayer. We have a prayer meeting every week. We pray during the morning service. Also apply this, is your house a house of prayer? Do you have daily devotions? Do you pray as well as read the scripture? So it, twice it says, ask God and ask the priest to pray. Now there's, I, I could open that up. Well, why ask others to pray if you can pray directly? Why do we take prayer requests? Why do we have a prayer meeting and say, get more people? Does it mean the more people that pray, the more likely it's to be answered? Not necessarily, but God commands us to pray. He uses our prayers. Sometimes we can pray directly to him or gather other people to pray. And priests were supposed to pray. Now, it mentions prophets and priests here. There's a difference. Uh, some men and occasionally women served as prophets or prophetesses. There were no priestesses, but sometimes a man would be a prophet, sometimes a priest, sometimes both. Uh, but nobody was a prophet, priest, and a king. There was one or two that were also judges. But what do we know about these? Uh, notice the difference in the similarity. Prophets spoke on behalf of God to the people. Priests spoke on behalf of the people to God. You got that? And so if a person was both of them, he is very busy with praying and speaking on God's behalf. Uh, how does that apply to us? We need people that are prayer warriors. You don't hear that term much anymore. My mother was one after my father died. She'd pray at least one or two hours a day for the next 15 years. Prayer warrior. The Bible mentions a few like that. And that's a ministry for certain people. But then there are other people that they're mainly speaking, like teaching children, sharing the gospel. So there's a place today for people that mainly speak to God on behalf of others, as well as speak to people on behalf of God. And we need both coming and going from heaven. But also each of us needs to pray to God and to speak to others, such as parents teaching their children the Bible or to witness to the lost. So notice the question at the end of verse 3. Uh, should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? So uh, curious that uh, Darius had done this. And what's this about weeping and fasting? It was because though they're back in the land, the building of the temple had been slowed down. So they say, maybe God is still angry with us, so let's pray and weep. And um, why the delay? Uh, should we continue weeping and fasting as we have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, verse 4, saying, Say to all the people, it's talking to Zechariah to prophesy, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, 
When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? When you eat and drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? So this is God's answer to that question, setting them right. So um, notice it mentions 70 years. That goes back to Jeremiah, see where I got the right, it's Jeremiah 25 and 29, where God said, enough is enough. Babylonians are going to take you all as slaves and take you out of the land of Israel for 70 years. And then you will be able to come back to the land. Well, the people evidently forgot about that, but close to the end of that time period, Daniel remembered it. And he mentions it in his book and said, the time is almost up. Let's pack our bags. We're going back. And God did touch the emperor and let them go back to the land. So that's the 70 years. I'm not going to get into the question of, well, what happened to the 70th year? And some say, well, that's the seven years of great tribulation in the future. I'm not getting into that. But I will say this. Daniel counted up those years and he was ready to go. He knew God had given a timeline. He has not given us a timeline to predict the second coming. Some of the prophecy experts that want to set dates will say, well, he set a date and Daniel um, counted it up. And so there are many other dates that we can count up and predict that God's coming next week, next month or whenever. No, God did not give us a timeline to predict the second coming. He did something like that with the end of the exile, but not for us. Back to the... Um, text here, this is a rebuke. Though they had been fasting, they did it in the wrong way. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for fasting in the wrong way. Matthew 6 and Matthew 23. There's a right way and a wrong way to do things that God has commanded. Um, They had added extra times of prayer and fasting, which was not necessarily wrong, but there was only one that God had actually commanded the whole nation to pray and fast on that day. Anybody know what day it was? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, usually in September. But in their tradition, they added four more and said, everybody has to do it on this. This was the beginning of the Pharisees' legalism. They didn't go back to idolatry, but they started adding their man-made traditions to God's law, and it became a mere formalism. Their heart wasn't in it. Lesson is, It's possible to misuse the good in a bad way. And that's what they were doing here. And that's why God, you'd say, well, why is God rebuking? Because they're praying and fasting. Because they did it in the wrong way. It says, did you really do it for me or for yourself? They did it for themselves. So it started with prayer and fasting for Jerusalem and the temple. And it became a mirror formality and legalism. And so God detested their hypocritical formalism, even though it looked very righteous. They're fasting, just like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. And hundreds of years earlier, God rebuked them for the same thing in Isaiah 58. And then not too long before the exile, again in Amos 5. Now, not many Christians today pray and fast. These were doing it wrong, but I've heard people misuse the principle of fasting, fasting, can be for like one meal, two or three meals. Um, but the purpose is to increase your praying. It's not a diet. And I've heard people say, I prayed and fast for a week and I lost 10 pounds. 
That's the gospel of Jenny Craig. You don't pray and fast to lose weight. That's self-centered, and that's what God rebuked him before. He says, did you really do this for me? Notice he repeats it, for me? Leading question, they did not do it for God, but for themselves. Here's the lesson for us. Do we do religious things for God or for ourselves? That's a penetrating question. Examine your heart, for example. When we sing hymns in the morning, do we sing that unto God or because we just like a good sing? When we pray, do we do it simply out of duty and mindless, same words every time, or do we really mean it? How about church attendance? Do we do it just because we want to see people and we don't want them to talk about us if we're not there? Or do we do it because we come to worship God? Same thing with Bible reading. In other words, it's possible to do good things in the wrong way. And that's what they were doing then. We shouldn't do that today. Boy, that's touching our conscience, just like this morning. I think we all felt uncomfortable thinking about those various sins of lying and so forth. It takes us to verses 6 and 7. When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you not have obeyed the words of the Lord, proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and the lowlands were inhabited? Notice these penetrating questions. Do a study on questions on the Bible. One of the first ones was when God went to Adam and said, Adam, where are you? God knew. Uh, Adam, what have you done? Like a parent questioning a child, uh, you know, it's like a, this is self-confession. When I was a boy, sometimes I'd sneak and get some cookies out of the cookie jar and not tell mom because she said, don't eat between meals. And you know what happens when a little boy eats stolen cookies, crumbs on his chin. And mom came and saw that and said, Kurt, we got a couple of cookies missing. Do you know anybody that took those cookies? She knew that I did, but she was trying to get, and she said, are you sure you didn't do it, Kurt? And there's nobody in the house. And they were there 20 minutes ago. Uh, Kurt, you, uh, did you take those cookies? Kind of like what God asked Adam, and that's the leading question here. Do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you not have obeyed? So these are questions to draw out a repentant answer. And they did it in the wrong way. What God is saying is uh, an important lesson. Obedience to God was more important than fasting or sacrifice. Okay, do you remember the story? 1 Samuel 15. Samuel was the judge. There were no kings yet. Well, there was one king, Saul, but he was a pitiful excuse. And so Saul was out away somewhere. And God had said through Samuel, you win this battle and um, you have a sacrifice. But the sacrifice is you sacrifice the enemy king's. And uh, you're not a priest, so you can't have an animal sacrifice. Saul, you're a king, but you're not a priest. It's only for, and, but Saul jumped the gun, and he didn't execute, he didn't sacrifice those that he should, and then he presumptuously offered a sacrifice that he shouldn't have done. And here comes old Samuel. Immediately put two and two together and looked right at Saul, marched up to him. and You know, Samuel was a dangerous man. I'll tell you at the end of the story why. The people feared old Mr. Samuel, who is 80 years old, very long beard, long hair because he hadn't shaved or cut his hair in decades. 
And he spoke the word of the Lord and nobody dare challenge him. A brave man, just like we need to be. So Samuel comes up to Saul and says, Saul, I hear sheep out there. Weren't they supposed to be sacrificed? And what about that king Agag? And what about the, you're not a priest. What are you doing offering? And he challenged him and Saul began to lie and make excuses. Well, you know, I meant it, meant it well. This is for the Lord. He was caught in a lie. And Samuel said, does the Lord take such delight in sacrifices? No, he delights in obedience, not sacrifice. Saul, you should have obeyed God and executed that wicked king and the sheep. You've kept them for yourselves. And Saul was kind of, well, he had no more excuses. So Samuel said, you should have executed that king. I'll do it. Give me a sword. And here's where he was dangerous. He, I mean, he was, he was downright mean, but in a righteous way. He took the sword. And it says he went over to Agag, the king. And Agag was thinking, I got off. You know, I pulled one over on Saul. And it says, and I quote, Samuel went and hacked King Agag in pieces. Dead king. You don't mess with Samuel. The people looked at that and said, don't ever challenge Samuel. Samuel probably threw the sword down. And you remember the rest of the story? He said, God's taken the kingdom away from you, Saul. Going to give it to someone else. But the point of all that was God wanted obedience, not that sacrifice. And he didn't do the right sacrifice. He did the wrong one. What about us? Sometimes we don't obey, but we think we can make up for it in another way. And again, here's a confession. Many, many years ago, when I was starting off as a preacher, I, uh, me and my parents went and visited another church, and the preacher was preaching on the story of Samuel and Saul and said, uh, God wanted obedience. God didn't want that other thing. And he said, sometimes that's what happens today when uh, a mother or father tells the child to do something and that child doesn't do it, so the child substitutes something else. And he told this story, he says, imagine, um, mama says, now I'm going shopping, but when I come back, I want you to clean your whole room, put the toys up, wipe off the dust, things like that. I want to be spick and spam when I come back, obey me. Yes, Mama. Mama goes out, comes back an hour or so later. The room is still a mess. The little child didn't want to get a spanking. So what the child does is sneak out, go next door, pick some flowers from the neighbor's garden and says, Mama, I've got something to tell you. I want to give these to you uh, because I love you. And Mama said, I didn't ask for flowers. I asked you to clean your room. I wanted you to obey me, not try to buy me off with flowers. When that preacher said that, James, my mother nudged me with an elbow because I had done something like that when I was a little boy. And I felt about that tall, even though I was already grown up. We try to buy God off by doing something that's easy rather than obeying him. God says, I want obedience, not sacrifice, not something substituted. Obey me. These Jews in Zechariah's day they thought they could just do this formal fasting and shoot up some prayers real quickly and, 
And God said, I didn't want that. You're doing this for yourself. The Pharisees were showing off that they fasted. Jesus said, that doesn't cut any ice with God, nor do we. It also mentions, notice, the former prophets. Those would be the prophets before Israel was taken off to exile, prophets such as Jeremiah. And it mentions the days of prosperity, like under David and Solomon and Hezekiah. And it mentions the north and south. Here's an indirect lesson from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. They were not fasting to the glory of God. We should eat and drink, fast or feast to the glory of God, not to ourselves, but always put obedience first. Fasting, though it is useful and biblical, it's not as important as God's commands to us. The Jews didn't get that. And so God rebuked them. Now verses 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. Now this is a universal command and principle that is still valid today. Let me show you a couple of great verses. So turn back a couple of books to the book of Micah. I'll give you a minute to find it. There's a couple of verses that are like very similar to what Zechariah 7, 9 says. So Micah chapter 6. Verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I still remember back in 1976 when um, there was the presidential election and uh, Jimmy Carter was being interviewed and they said, well, you say you teach Sunday school and you're a Christian. Do you have a key Bible verse if you become president? And he quoted Micah by heart. He said, to love justice and to show mercy. And I'd say, well, good for Jimmy Carter. Now, notice these three great themes. Go back to Zechariah, and it's echoed in Micah. It says, execute true justice. Not false justice, true justice. Hebrew word is mispat. Ask your Jewish friends, they say, oh, that's very important. Mispat, justice. What does that mean? The word has been used in many ways. You know, people chanting, no justice, no peace, or there's the justice department. The worst use of justice I remember was years ago, uh, there was a very liberal so-called Christian denomination said, we're going to approve of justice love. Boy, you talk about two wonderful words put together. You know what they defined it as? Homosexuality. They called it, they dared call that justice love. So the word can be misused. What is true justice? It means righteousness by God's standard, not by ours. For example... The punishment of the guilty and the exoneration of the innocent. No exceptions and no crossover. You're not to punish the innocent and you're not to let the guilty go. Otherwise, you're practicing injustice. Remember this morning I said sometimes we need to have righteous indignation because there is sometimes injustice. Innocent person being punished and a guilty person going free and you say that's not right. And it's not right. It's injustice. You know, even non-Christians that don't believe in God have some sense of justice and 
Most people don't like injustice, especially if it's against them. Number two, it says, show mercy. Now, here's a great word. It's the Hebrew word chesed, H-E-S-E-D. Very popular in, in the Bible. It means mercy with a promise that God will be faithful to show mercy, like I am a merciful God. And in one place, remember, I quoted I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Another one, I desire obedience and not sacrifice. Jesus quoted the one from Hosea where he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God wants us to be merciful to others. He once said in the Sermon on the Mount, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Show mercy. And thirdly, and compassion. That's the Hebrew word rahamim, similar to the New Testament word splagnos. It means, actually it's very interesting, in the Greek it means literally your guts. You know, we talk about a person having guts because he's brave, but to the Jew, uh, and to the Greek particularly, your, your guts down here is when you feel something, you feel something for someone very deeply and you, you're moved if he's hurting. And it's like that with Rahamim, I looked it up. It's related to a word that means a woman's womb. And it's implying a mother's love for her child. That's what God's love is like to us. And we should be like that. Some deep moving compassion when we see someone hurting. Like a mother seeing her child hurting. So that's why God says execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion everyone to his brother and your sister and even strangers. And he gives examples in verse 10. This is how we show justice, mercy, and compassion. Don't oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien, or the poor. Let's look at those briefly. Mentions the widow. The Bible says a lot about that. By the way, oppression there means things like stealing, injustice, corruption, taking away rights. Don't oppress them. And then he mentions four cases. Number one, the widows. Widows can be very vulnerable, especially back then. Their husband died maybe in war or disease or whatever. And now this widow can't work. Because they were, they usually the jobs went to the men and the women would be at home. Book of James says we should have a special care for widows. First Timothy 2, uh, chapter 5 says the same thing. We have widows in our church. But they're vulnerable. Who's going to who, who's gonna care for me? Remember that story in the, where is it, Luke where Jesus was with a bunch of crowds and they're all saying, heal me. And they all stopped as a funeral procession went by. And I'm sure the Jews, you know, they said, let's pray and show respect for the dead. Kind of like today, people will stop as the hearse drives by, or they should. And so Jesus saw that, and it was a funeral for a young man who was the only son of a widow. Think about that. Her husband's gone. Her only son's gone. She's wondering who's going to take care of me. Help. And it says Jesus looked at her and had compassion on her. Went over to the coffin and raised the young man and said, woman, here's your son. He had compassion. He's, he's illustrating what Zechariah said, show mercy and compassion. And the Bible says, especially for widows. Secondly, fatherless. Now that would be like orphans of men that had been killed in the war, or the father died, uh, or maybe both parents have died, but it specifically says the fatherless. 
There are not as many like this today precisely like back then because of the wars of Israel, but this would apply to, for example, children of single mothers or some of these, the children of some of the prison inmates that write to me. Their wives have said to the children, daddies in jail have nothing to do with them, and that breaks the heart of that poor guy in prison. And then those kids say, well, mama, what about daddy? Don't ever talk about daddy. And those children feel like an orphan. We're to show compassion and not oppress the fatherless. Thirdly, it says the alien. For example, when the Jews left, uh, left Egypt, uh, some of the Egyptians tagged along. They were considered aliens. And they didn't have the full rights as the Israelites, but they were to be treated in a right way. One way, for example, God said, you treat them different than the way the Egyptians treated you when you were back in Egypt. You show them mercy. Give them a day off of work. Have mercy on the alien. Don't, uh, don't misuse them. And then thought transferred when the Jews went into the promised land. They were to fight the Canaanites, but there'd be other ones, Edomites and others, that were to be shown mercy. In other words, Gentiles. Now, look at that word alien. How would that apply to us today? Think about the mass immigration sneaking in the southern border. They used to be called illegal immigrants, illegal aliens. It's not culturally correct to call them that. Alien seems, means simply someone from another land that's now in this land. Now, whether you believe there should be a wall or safeguards or count heads or check records or something like that, whatever position you take, right or left, the aliens need to be taken care of. We should show them mercy, help them feed. After all, a lot of them just, they're fleeing persecution and oppression, or they just want a better life for them. And they're, they're children that are dirt poor, and they say, well, maybe we can get work north of the river in, in America. Wouldn't you want to do that if that was you? However you look at it, they should be treated well. That's what God says here. And you look it up in your Bible over and over again, it says, you show mercy to these aliens. Number four, it says the poor. Jesus said the poor will always be with you. We have poor today, even though the poor in America usually have more than the poor in certain countries in the world that are really poor. Beggars on the street of Calcutta, for example. The poor, not all poor are lazy. Some are simply handicapped, less educated, have few skills. They have mounting bills and they're always never able to get out of poverty. We need to help people like that. Not like what I said that this morning, that Bible verse that says, if any man will not work, let him not eat. There are the people that want to work, but are not able to work. Seriously handicapped. There should be some provision for them. Government, churches, communities, whatever. You take care of the poor like that. For example, God instituted something in Israel that it would be worth thinking about today. This was better than just simply giving them food stamps God said to the farmers, don't trim the corners of your field. Leave the grain there for the poor. And when you harvest your field, don't pick up everything. Let the poor come and take the leftovers. And not only that, he said, when your corn is right there on the stalk, the poor can go in and eat it. They can't come in with like a big truck and load up, but they say if they're starving, they can go out in your field. That's not stealing. God said, you let them take 
Why didn't anybody suggest this to Congress? Did you know that a lot of food markets have to throw out good food? They're not allowed to give it to the poor. Why not? Various reasons. And a lot of these grocers said, we'd like to say, you know, it's just past its sell date, but it's still edible and drinkable. Why can't we let the poor come in and take this? But the commissar said, no, we can't do that. But God made provision. And God said, don't oppress the poor. Take care of the poor. And it says, let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. Jesus said something like that, that um, this is where evil starts, is in the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And the cure has to start there. The Bible promises a heart transplant. Don't plan evil in your heart. Okay, quickly, the rest of the chapter, verse 11. But they refused to heed. In other words, they didn't want to listen to Zechariah. They shrugged their shoulders, kind of like people that hear our open-air evangelists, and they just shrugged their shoulders. Oh, not interested. And they stopped their ears. They put their hands over their ears. They said, we don't want to hear this. Yes, they made their hearts like flint. That's something hard. Refusing to hear the law and the words with the, which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit. through the, There's the former prophets again. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. It's like he's saying, don't you remember? That's why I let the Babylonians conquer you. Now you're back in the land. And this is how you say thanks by disobeying me. It's almost like God's warning them. Maybe of a second exile. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Now, some people will read all this and say, I, I, I don't get it. Why is God so angry with them? God is angry with all sin. They were throwing it back in God's face, not doing it in the right way. And so God was angry. God is angry with us when we sin. And so it says it happens that he proclaimed this. That Now, this is serious business, verses 13 and 14. It happened that just as he proclaimed, and they would not hear, so they called out, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. Boy, that's tit for tat justice. Lex talionis. I called out to you. I gave you so much, Israel. I gave you prophets. I gave you the sacrifices, the priests, all the covenants. And you didn't listen to me. And he warns them, the time is going to come. You're calling out to me and I won't listen to you. This is ultimately fulfilled, as Proverbs 1 says, at judgment day. God calls out in the gospel to people. And they say, not interested. Eh, keep it to yourself. Separation of church and state. We don't want to listen to that. It's good for you, but not for me. Shut up. And, but they're saying, shut up to God. I don't want to listen to you, God. So God says, you don't want to listen to me? Okay. You, I call to you, you won't listen. And then God gets very serious and says, the day's coming when you're going to call out to me and I won't listen. When? Ultimately, judgment day. The verdict is read out, guilty. Angels come and drag these people off to the fires of hell. Then they're going to be crying out, no, no, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we? we got baptized. God says, shut up. I called to you and you didn't listen. Now you're calling to me. I'm not listening. It's too late. Punishment. 
That's God's way. And that's what the prophet said over and over again. It's poetic justice. Lastly, verse 14. So I scattered them. This is going back to what happened with the exile. I scattered them with whirlwind among the nations which they had not known. In other words, they went to a place that couldn't even understand the language. Thus the land became desolate for those 70 years so that no one passed through or returned for they made the pleasant land desolate. Uh, during the exile, very few people were left to try to till the soil, but it became a lot of weeds and stuff like that. And they probably tried to blame God for that. And God said, no, it's, it, you brought this upon yourself. Sometimes a disobedient people like America can have sin characterize that culture. And God says, you want to be like that? Then I'll punish you and make the land desolate. And it says here that they had been dispersed around. Earlier he mentioned the dispersion. After the exile, some did not come back to Israel. They went elsewhere. Um, John 7 and James 1 mentions the dispersion of Jews. Some came back, some didn't. Some wandered like lost tribes. But there will be a later regathering, and we've seen some of that in the 20th and 21st centuries, Jews going back to Israel, some of them even coming back to believe Jesus is Messiah. Here's the last lesson. Christians are like a kind of dispersion. Think about it. Especially read James 1.1. And also 1 Peter addresses Christians as kind of like dispersion. And there's a couple of verses that say Christians are like pilgrims and aliens in a foreign land. We are called aliens. Why? This isn't our homeland. You might say, well, I'm, I'm American. No, ultimately, you're a citizen of heaven. Philippians 3 says our citizenship is in heaven. We're pilgrims and aliens on earth. They're not treating us right. They persecute us, laugh at us. Have you ever heard the old saying? I remember preachers used to say this. Sally, I bet you've heard it. They said, don't drive your stakes in too deep. You're only passing through. What does that mean? Tent stakes. You're, you're passing through, but don't dig them in too deep. Because you're going to have to pull them up and move on. Well, what's the old song? I'm only traveling along. And we are. In that sense, we are pilgrims and aliens marching to the heavenly Zion. So there's an application here. Well, that's our study on Zechariah chapter 7. Lord willing, we'll go verse by verse to chapter 8 next week. Shall we pray? Father, teach us true justice, true mercy, true compassion to all people, especially those that are in need. And forgive us if we ever become simply religiously formal like the Jews in that day or in the day of Jesus. Show us what you really want from us. In Jesus' name, amen.